Friends, uh, you made it, and uh, I know for some of you that was uh, difficult, and uh, man, what a night, huh? Um, traffic and weather and nothing to get you in the Christmas spirit um, quite like that. Um, if I haven't a chance to meet you, my name is Joe, one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm just going to share some uh, brief thoughts with you. Um, it's a joy to be with you in worship, um, and before we uh, get into the, the teaching tonight, though, I want to just, uh, let's take a second and pray. Can you pray with me? God, we're just so, so grateful to, um, to be here and to be able to um, share in this season together. And um, Lord, we all come tonight and, and to Christmas with different stuff. And um, Lord, I just ask that you'd help us lay those things down and lay aside any distractions or anxieties or uh, whatever it is that we might be carrying around or, or uh, sitting on our shoulders, that you'd just uh, help us to breathe and to relax and to... Um, experience you. Help us to not worry about tomorrow or next week or even Christmas morning. Just meet us now. Your name. Amen. There's a conference many years ago in Britain set up to discuss uh, comparative religions. And um, as the case in a lot of these types of conferences, these uh, experts gathered to uh, not only um, present, but to sit in rooms and to talk about big ideas. And so there was one such room that was holding discussion specifically on Christianity and whether there was anything particularly unique about Christianity uh, that compared to other religions. So it was, you know, comparing different religions. And uh, people began to offer suggestions, and then these very intelligent and bright people would shoot them down. For example, the Incarnation. The, the very crux of the Christmas story, the incarnation. And people would say, no, 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 that's not unique to Christianity. Um, Many other religions have uh, talked about this idea of God appearing in human form in various ways. You know, the way in which it happens in the Christmas story is unique, but it's not unique in and of itself. Um, Another one, resurrection, which is the very crux of our faith, uh, Paul says. Uh, Not entirely unique to Christianity. Now, of course, the way in which we see it being played out and the way in which God is is unique, but the idea of something coming back from dead to life, um, you see that in any many other religions as well. So the debate went on until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. Now, I don't know if this story is true, but I found it on the internet, so you know it probably is. And... uh, (laughs) C.S. Lewis, influential uh, uh, theologian, Christian author, and he asked, you know, what's the rumpus all about? Um, great word, by the way, rumpus, and um, it feels Christmassy. Anything said in England feels Christmassy to me. Um, I'm not going to attempt an accent, so relax. Uh, but they, they explained, to, you know, that their colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions, and Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace. God's unmerited favor. Um, They discussed it further, and as the story goes, uh, everyone agreed. This was unique, a unique contribution made by Christianity, that God would offer us life and salvation and peace and the very breath we breathe and joy and gifts beyond measure, all for free, without strings attached, without having to earn it, just free, lavish, unmerited grace. They said the Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, and even the Muslim Code of Law, each of these don't quite have the same understanding of grace and certainly don't make it the focus of their understanding of the divine. Only Christianity dares to suggest that God's love for us might be unconditional, unmerited even. Not only do we not have to earn it, we couldn't if we tried. Grace. 
know, around Christmas time, I, I tend to think about the incarnation, the idea that God would come and dwell amongst us, you know, as, as a human. And while this is indeed profound and even unique, um, what is really unique is, is not that God came and dwelt amongst us, but the reason why and what Jesus did and taught and modeled for us when he came, that without doing anything to earn it, Jesus came to set captives free, to give sight to the blind, to heal the sick, and to salvation to all who would, without having to do anything to earn it, grace. Grace, grace is so radical and so profound that even the most sincere follower of Jesus, I won't have you raise your hands, but even the most sincere followers of Jesus in here struggle to really understand it and to really accept it. That love without strings attached, without, that love would be unconditional, that, that, that love could be that grand. And I will add, sadly, I fear it is the church and sometimes especially Christians who seem to have the hardest time with this, both receiving grace and giving it. It's almost ironic that the one thing our faith brings to the world religion scene, so to speak, is, that's unique, is grace, and yet it's not always what we're known for giving away. Grace. Reminds me of a story. So I'm going to tell you a story. You know it's going to be good because it's a story based on a, an obscure Danish film none of you have probably ever watched. So It's a short movie called Babette's Feast. Anyone by chance have watched it? Hey, we got a few. Same, f- no, different families, okay. Um, it's, a, it's a Danish film from 1987. It was the first film, though, uh, there's a little plug for it, uh, to win the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film from Denmark. So um, it's a good story. It's a story of Babette. She's a cook from Paris. During the French Revolution, she has to leave Paris, if you, if you remember world history. And she's fleeing for her life, and she's able to connect with a friend of a friend and move to this small village in Denmark where she is hired as a housekeeper. So she moves from the, the, from the wealth and extravagance of Paris as a cook to this little house in this little village in Denmark. She ends up caring for two older women. They were daughters of a pastor who had started a ministry in this small Danish village. And they now, the older sisters uh, together, uh, run. Um, they left their marriage. They, they decide not to get married. They lived a simple life, and they run this ministry. And it's known for its simplicity and strictness. They intentionally avoided any pleasures in life. None. Zip. No goodness, no flavor. So, so the cook comes from these, this kitchen in Paris to making boiled bread with ale. Anyone ever had that? I have not. You say, what is that? I asked the same question. I looked it up. Here's a picture of it, boiled bread with ale. Let me explain. You can add this to your Christmas meal if you'd like to. It's very simple. The bread is torn into pieces, and then ale and water are poured over it, and it sits overnight. So you know it's going to be good. And then the next morning, the mixture is blended or strained, flavored, but not very much, cooked down to consistency of a porridge. Very yummy. The less the spices, the better. No pleasures, no flavor, no goodness. These women were holy women, and they couldn't be bothered with the riches of this world. Salvation came in depriving yourself, they believed. So Babette, she cooks and cares for them, making things like boiled bread and simple dried fish for the next 14 years. This becomes her life. Doing, as they say, leaving her old world behind. And as a cook... It's like a painter moving to a town where paint and canvas is outlawed, basically. But then one day, she finds out that she's won the lottery from a ticket that a friend had kept for her 
in Paris. So Babette won 10,000 francs. In that single moment, she goes from a poor refugee to wealth, enough to start a new life in Paris. And so she decides to celebrate. She is going to plan a feast, hence the title of the story. And it would be like the feast that she would make in France. And she wouldn't make anything less than perfect. The sisters were, of course, a little nervous about this. It sounded very lavish and rich and tempting, drinks and fine meats and flavor and desserts, you know, the works. But out of pity to her, they concede and they let her plan her feast. And plan is the word for it. She plans a true Perusian feast, orders food and drinks and spices from all. I mean, it takes months for the things to just arrive. And she puts it all together and the night comes and she has it prepared perfectly down to the china. And in attendance, you have the sisters and some people from the church and then a general who just happens to be visiting the town. Of all the guests, the general would be the only one who would have experienced a meal like this, you know. So dinner is served, and it's as wonderful as you can imagine. The smell alone would make you lick your lips, and the meats, and the sides, and the drinks, and they eat. And while they were skeptical at first, with a little bit of alcohol, they couldn't help but enjoy themselves. And the general, who had been to nice meals before, was so overwhelmed by this meal, it was better than anything he had before, so much so that he rose to his feet and he gives a speech in the middle of the meal. I mean, it was that kind of meal that takes generals to their feet. After the dinner, Babette sat in the kitchen serving, after serving the guests, and the sisters walk in, and they thank her, and they ask her, so now when will you be leaving to Paris? And she replies, oh, no, I I won't go back to Paris. All of my friends are long gone, and I have nothing to go back to. Plus, I don't have any more money. And the sisters were completely beside themselves. What about the 10,000 francs? You won the lottery. Oh, it's all gone, she said. And then it sunk in. The sisters realized where all the money had gone. It had gone to this feast, and they went pale, and she could see it. And you can imagine what they're thinking. Did you really waste all of that on one meal? You could have started your life over. They couldn't believe it. And so she explained. She said, oh, don't worry. That's just how much a dinner for 12 costs at a nice cafe in Paris. They say, well, you, you didn't have to do that for us. And she says, I didn't do it for you. Not only. I did it for me, too. I love this story for a number of reasons. First, she gave all she had to people who were nearly incapable of being able to truly appreciate it. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells this story. It's where I heard about it, and then he adds this thought. He says, grace came to them in the form of a feast, Babette's feast, a meal of a lifetime lavished on those who in no way earned it, who barely possessed the faculties to receive it. In a little town in Denmark, all of the riches of the city came to their door, and they hardly had the taste to receive it. But isn't that the Christmas story? In a little town of Bethlehem, All of the riches of heaven came to their door, and so many didn't even have the taste to receive it. All the riches of God still comes to our door. Grace poured out every day in all kinds of ways, made possible by Jesus being born and then giving all that he had, and yet I receive it, and, and I often 
on a normal day, don't think much of it. John 1 verse 1 and following says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus came like a feast to those who are used to only boiled bread, and we just don't get it. I'm not used to it. I'm not used to unconditional love. Nothing in life outside of God's grace is unconditional. Think about it. How many times can you screw up at work before you no longer have a job? There might be a number. How many times do you, do you ignore your child until you no longer have a relationship? How many times do you ruin your things with your spouse until you no longer have a spouse? How many times can you steal from someone until you no longer have your freedom? That's just how life works. We think, and so I, because it's how life works, I think we tend to put that kind of perspective onto God, that God's forgiveness has limits, that there might be a time where it's too many. But God says to us, this is the whole idea of grace. You can ignore me all you want, hurt me all you want, ruin me, steal from me all you want, and I will never stop loving you, never unconditional grace. Why is it so hard to receive it? Because as people living in darkness and a world with limits and conditions where the light shines and we don't understand it, the light shines to people who have always lived in darkness and so they don't get it. And the problem with darkness is our eyes tend to adjust. So the darker it gets, we get used to it. And so when a light is turned on, it almost feels like we're blind. When in reality, if we give it enough time, we'll realize that with it, we can finally see. There's an unfamiliar character in the Christmas story. You won't find him in Christmas songs, and you won't find him in the nativity scene, but he's in the Christmas story all the same. Um, It's the second chapter of of Luke's gospel. His name is Simeon. He's a priest, and he was the kind of priest who had been waiting his whole life to see God, hoping that God's light would shine through at a time when he could see it, hoping and praying that he would live long enough specifically to see the Messiah, that that God's light would break into this world through a Messiah. It's his whole life he's been waiting, and now he's very old. And this priest, as a priest, is serving in the temple. Of all days, he's serving when Jesus is going to be uh, circumcised. As is done in the Jewish faith, after Jesus' birth, Jesus would be brought to be circumcised as a way of welcoming into God's family, something that we experience now through baptism. So Simeon is there, and he knows for a fact, as soon as he sees this baby come, something clicks. I don't know how, but he just knows right away. If you read the story, he's like, this is the Messiah. And so he has this moment where he's like, he takes Jesus into his, his arms, and he, like, it's probably like a Lion King, like he holds him up, there's music and lights and all that. And then he says this, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. He's the only character in the Christmas story who doesn't go looking for Jesus. He doesn't have to be told that Jesus is coming by angels or messengers. He just waits. And when Jesus shows up, he has the eyes to see it. He's awake enough to get it. I wonder if God showed up in your life this Christmas, would you notice? I want to be like Simeon. 
And I, I do. I want to relish the joy and the excitement uh, worthy of a gift this good. Uh, this Christmas, I want to understand the beauty of grace. I want to be like that general. Do you remember the general from the story? That when receiving something as good as this, you can't help but stand up and give a speech, which some of you are like, that's exactly what you're doing right now, Joe. So you're, and you would probably do it at a dinner, and I have. And some of you would too, so don't judge me. When the dinner was served in this little town in Denmark, the, the general couldn't help himself. He did give a speech. He stopped the meal, and he, and he gathered the, the attention of all present, and he declared these words, a fitting summary of what transpired not only that night, but any time we experience the goodness of God and each other in times and in ways we often don't deserve or even expect and can never earn. He said this, we have all of us been told that grace is found in the universe. But in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite. But the moment comes when our eyes are opened and we see and realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. Let me say that again. I don't think you're hearing me. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us, but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude.